Hello and welcome to Prospect Lives. Each month, our family of seven writers discuss their different views of modern life for Prospect magazine. Spanning a wide section of society, their reflections provide a window into their particular worlds and an insight into how they navigate their way through the challenges that life throws at them. This December, many of our lives writers are pushed out of their comfort zones. Sex worker Tilly Lawless reflects on the turbulent emotions she feels after performing both sexually and at literary readings. Sarah Collins, who suffers with OCD, goes for a bike ride with her father's middle-aged friends. Actor and writer Sheila Hancock is restless for political revolution. And Jen Zia, Alice Garnett, is forced to accept her childhood bedroom being transformed into a guest room. But let's begin with Farmer Tom, who reflects on how bad weather turned his farm upside down. What do Agnes, Babette, Kieran and Debbie all have in common? Well, they're all names that I will not be giving my children, or my dog for that matter. They're names which are verboten in my household. They are not welcome, and yet they've made their intrusive presence known in recent weeks. They are, of course, the increasingly unusual names given by the weather forecasters to the storms that have struck our coastline, ravaged our towns and drowned my fields. Each struck worst in different parts of the UK, generously doling out misery to Northern Ireland and Wales, that was Debbie and Agnes, Southern England, Kieran, and the east of England and poor Scotland, Babette, the latter of which was very nearly sunk beneath the storms. It was Babette that our farm fell victim to on Friday the 20th of October when we saw 65.8 millimetres, that's 2.59 inches of rain, with nearly 12 millimetres or just under half an inch falling in one hour. The roads were flooded with water, ditches were full and the sheep were distinctly unimpressed, as was I. I was worried that recently sown fields would be wastelands and that any planned planting would be cancelled until spring. October 2023 was one of the stormiest on record in the UK and the three days of Storm Babette from the 18th to the 21st of October were the wettest three days in a series since 1981. On the farm, we've been working to improve our soils in recent years, making them more resilient to extreme weather, including heavy rainfall. We've been reducing our tillage to improve soil structure and growing unharvested cover crops through the winter to hold up water and retain nutrients. Interestingly, gardeners employ similar techniques, calling it green manure, as plants take up and hold nutrients through the winter and release them as they die off in the spring. We have left harvest straw residue on the surface of the field to protect the soil from the impacts of heavy rainfall, and these measures have definitely made a difference. But, despite this, the strongest defences and healthiest soils can be overrun by sheer volume. During Storm Babette, some parts of Scotland received 150 to 200 millimetres of rain, and many areas in the east of Scotland recorded the highest ever monthly rainfall figures in October. No precautions could defend against this level of rain, we saw videos of silage bales being washed out to sea, flood defences breached and, sadly, several lives lost. For farmers, however, the fallout has only just begun. In a group on social media recently, I saw respected farmers writing about concerns for crops lost, soils damaged and the impacts on harvest next year, with the potential knock-on effects on grain markets and straw availability driving up shelf prices for food items from bread through to beef. What makes matters worse is that weather, despite being a favoured topic of conversation for those of us making a living from the land, is not the only pressure on farmers. 
In the last harvest year, the cost of fertiliser reached record highs after fuel prices spiked due to Putin's war in Ukraine. But by the time harvest rolled around, grain prices were back down at previous lower values, meaning farmers are approaching this winter with low cash reserves or, more likely, very high overdrafts. In a recent conversation with an accountant, she told me of her grave concerns for where her farmers will be financially by this time next year, when another year of higher input costs and lower market prices for our produce could put even more resilient farm businesses in danger. You see, there's a lot going on for farmers. And so a named storm serving up a few extra millimetres of rain might just be the straw that breaks the camel's back. In a recent survey on mental health in farming, there were worrying results, as only 8% of women and 12% of men said they had good mental health. And farmers have historically had a high suicide rate compared with other professions. We're isolated, we're stressed, and we're vulnerable. The Met Office has announced the full roster of potential storm names for the 2023 to 2024 season, right through to W for Walid, which would be the name of the 23rd storm. Please, no. So if you hear Fergus, Gerrit, Henk or Aisha named in the forecast in the coming weeks, spare a thought for us farmers, the 1% of the nation battling the beastly weather to feed the other 99%. We appreciate your thanks, but more than that, we need your support so we can still be here next year stewarding soils and holding back flood water from your homes. Just another service we provide. While Tom battles with heavy rain, Sarah falls off her bike on a slippery section of the canal. Last month was my dad's birthday and to celebrate I joined him for his weekly ritual, a Saturday morning off-road bike ride with a group of other male cyclists, all between the ages of 40 and 80. Trevor, who rides an electric bike, celebrated his own birthday recently, becoming the first octogenarian in the club. The group meets at the Bonded Warehouse, a 19th century red brick building that sits proudly on the Starbridge Canal, at the early for a Saturday start time of 9.30am. There was some mild bickering between my father, Mike and I, about who was going to make us late, a debate that was settled on our arrival by fellow cyclist Ian, who confirmed that my dad usually turns up at around 9.45am and I had, in fact, made him early. Ian is a familiar face, as I had done this off-road ride several times before, usually when back home for an OCD boot camp. This is a regime of eating well, sleeping properly, and completing mindfulness exercises that, when I'm struggling, I force my long-suffering parents to supervise. The birthday ride had inauspicious beginnings, as I was recovering from having broken my wrist just six weeks before, and my mother waved us off with a stern, Mike, do not let her fall off that bike. Of course, I dramatically fell off my bike within five minutes when crossing a bridge over the canal and turning a corner. Thankfully, my knee, rather than my fragile wrist, took the hit. I considered going back home, my confidence not only in my wrist but in myself wavering, as my physical injury had coincided with an OCD relapse from which I was only in the baby steps of recovering. But with the gentle encouragement of Ian, Gary and the rest of the group, I got back on the saddle and continued down the trails. The bike ride is a staple of my boot camp. I've noticed that its mental health benefits extend beyond the simple effects of the exercise and the scenery, which is, in my humble opinion, underrated. The West Midlands boasts a stunning canal network and rolling hills. Being immersed in a group of people from an entirely different demographic to your own, 
is soothing and mindful in a way that a coffee and a gossip or a big night out or even a bike ride with friends your own age could never be. The cycling group's conversations are of a different register to my friends. They embody a gentle, non-toxic masculinity. Every conversation has an undercurrent of teasing and the focus is very much on practical developments. Who has a new bike or new car? And who has completed what DIY? Not a single compliment is exchanged for the duration of the ride, except to me. I'm given helpful tips and genuine praise when I complete a tough hill or get through a patch of mud. But the deep care that's clearly shared among the group is demonstrated in more subtle ways. Ian regularly brings my dad vegetables from his allotment. One cyclist takes a slice of bakewood tart from the cafe where we stop halfway round to the house of another man who couldn't make it that morning. More personal concerns and thoughts are exchanged. They're just delivered and then received in a more matter-of-fact way than the confessional tone my friends and I use. One particularly skilled cyclist, who single-handedly coached me through a sandstone gully, shares his worries about his son who has autism and receives empathy and validation from the group. I leave the ride feeling thoroughly refreshed and less lost about what my future holds. Being around people from all walks of life who have been there, done that, survived their 20s and are having a great laugh is deeply reassuring. I wonder whether this is what community is meant to be. In the digital age, we are constantly algorithmically pushed towards people who are similar to us in age, in views, in socioeconomic background. On social media, we're steered into echo chambers of others who think just like us. Normally, that's the world I live in. But sometimes it's helpful to step away from the shared angst of your own demographic and be a fish out of water. It's a privilege for me to share mornings with my dad's cycling friends. As Sarah embraces her feelings like a fish out of water, Anglican priest Alice Goodman reminisces on a time she broke away from convention in the church. God is not a human being that he should lie, or a mortal that he should change his mind. Has he promised, and will he not do it? Has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? See, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. Numbers 23, 19-20 Last March, I sat down with two of my parishioners to plan the service to bless their union. Their marriage, actually. They'd been married about four and a half years at that point. The General Synod of the Church of England had finally, after years of foot-dragging and stalling, kicking the can down the road and reflecting in small groups about living in love and faith, agreed to approve prayers to be used in churches where there was a desire to acknowledge the presence of God's love in the relationships of people of the same sex. Gay marriage blessings, in other words. Though one was warned not to use the words marriage or blessing in relation to the word gay, unless there was a no or a not in the sentence. This, remember, is ten years after the passage of the Marriage Same-Sex Couples Act of 2013 and 19 years after the Civil Partnerships Act of 2004. By October, we should be able to bless you, I said. Make it towards the end of October and we can have it on our fifth anniversary, they replied. So they chose the music and readings, invited their friends and families, and began to plan the party. By this point, I'd read over the prayers of love and faith that we were going to be allowed to use, and frankly, I didn't think much of them. 
They seemed half-hearted, pinched, meagre, and principally concerned with reassuring everyone who was opposed to this couple's marriage that the Church of England didn't believe that they were actually married and devoutly hoped that they were not having sex. So I turned to the Green Book, Common Worship Pastoral Services, to the service of prayer and dedication after a civil marriage. Ah, yes, here we go. Cross out all the preliminary penitential material inserted into the service back in the year 2000, when the Church believed that people who get married at the registrar's office must have something to repent, and go directly to page 177. N and N, you have committed yourselves to each other in marriage, and your marriage is recognised by law. Ah, here we find the need to do a little more editing. The Church of Christ understands marriage to be, in the will of God, the faithful union of two persons, not a man and a woman, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, etc., etc. Is that your understanding of the covenant and promise you have made? Couple. It is. Then just change your wife and your husband to the names of the couple, and then we're set. We'd go back to the marriage service for the prayers, glad to have number 13, for marriage as a sign to the world. The afternoon before the service, Friday the 20th of October 2023, a document was released by the House of Bishops. 108 pages, none of them cheerful reading. More work needed to be done. No blessings before 2025 anyway, it said. But in my parish, the feast had been prepared. The church warden had chosen his tie. The bell ringers were paid, and the orders of service were printed. The parochial church council had given its unanimous approval more than three years ago for us to bless marriages like this. After a lifetime of writing... I'm still ill-equipped to give an account of the joy that filled St. Vigor's at J and B's blessing. I've never known anything like it. The church was full, but we've had big congregations before. On this day, it was as if the church was filled with light. The music was glorious. My sermon, though, veered off piste. Even with the excellent readings they'd chosen— Romans 8, 28-39, and Matthew 5, 15-16, I had to add another. Thinking of the bishops, and looking out at the congregation, young women in floral dungarees, one feeding her baby, a dozen or so other children squashed in the pews or playing in the north transept, elderly relations in rakish hats, young men in loud coats, little red poodle in a rainbow collar, I began to retell the story of Balaam, who, I said, was hired to curse the people God loved, and eventually set out to do it, until his donkey, a she-donkey, by the way, important to get the pronouns right, stopped and wouldn't move another step. How the donkey rebuked Balaam in good biblical Hebrew, and how the angel, whom the donkey had been able to see, told him that if it weren't for the donkey, he would have been struck dead.
and then what the angel told Balaam to say, and how Balaam, to the consternation of those who'd hired him, pronounced the full and unequivocal blessing that God gives those God loves. For Tilly Lawless, the pressure of performance leaves her seeking aftercare. Clients are often reluctant to spend much time with sex workers, perhaps distrusting of people who trade in curated intimate experiences and not wanting to be taken for a ride. Because of this, they often try to fit an inconceivable number of things into a booking. I want to try this, this and this all in the space of an hour. Sometimes a client will ask me if my service can include him orgasming three times in 60 minutes. I don't know, can you come three times in an hour? I ask, to remind him that often it is our own body's capabilities that hold us back from achieving our fantasies, not the other person's desirability. When clients book a BDSM type session, they don't factor in any time for aftercare. If they pay for three hours in which they will tie me and another girl up and call us slaves while using sex toys on us, they want to milk every minute of that. They either don't want to pay extra to chat afterwards or have to rush back to their work or their families. Over time I've learnt through experience about sub-drop, the low that can follow when you've made yourself physically and emotionally vulnerable to someone. I've had to learn to self-soothe after particularly exhausting sessions, to go home, have a bath, smoke a joint, watch a movie. These are things that are meant to be done alongside the person who has consensually humiliated or dominated you, but I instead have to do solo. To be frank, it's better than the alternative of lingering with a client who isn't paying me. That certainly wouldn't make me feel any better. A few months ago, I was interviewed at a literary festival. While on paper it went well, the audience had responded with applause. I'd answered the questions in a way I was content with. I was left feeling morose afterwards. What was it that had me feeling dissatisfied? It wasn't until I called a friend and started to speak about it that I realised that I was feeling the same way I do after an intense booking. I needed some sort of aftercare. I wanted to feel an embraced and enveloped by the audience, just as after being a submissive, sometimes all I crave is a hug. I had exposed myself to a crowd by speaking about things that were difficult, and it felt similar to the times in sex work when I have done things that are sometimes not easy while pretending to feel at ease and confident. And, unlike speaking engagements I've had in the past, because I was in a foreign city, I had no readers and followers coming up to chat to me afterwards, or friends to kick on from the event with. This made me contemplate the two modes of work and the exposure that different kinds of performances demand generally. Recently, I rewatched Etta James' live performance of I'd Rather Go Blind in 1975. At the height of both her heroin addiction and her truly incomprehensible singing powers, her face dripped with sweat. I couldn't help thinking about how hard the calm down must have been from the high of that performance, why it is that performers often chase that high afterwards in other ways, and what it must feel like to step back into a subdued hotel room after giving so much of yourself on stage. Whenever I have made a spectacle of myself, whether through speaking about my book or through role-playing with a client, afterwards I always desire a moment of connection outside the realm of performance. I wonder if that is common to all performances. After the break, we'll hear from Gen Zia Alice Garnett and actor and writer Sheila Hancock, as well as former England cricket captain Mike Brearley. But first, I'd like to tell you about a new seasonal subscription offer. We're discounting the price of an annual digital subscription by 50%. To take advantage of this great deal, please search for Prospect New Year Offer 
or visit subscribe.prospectmagazine.co.uk forward slash NY. The offer ends on Friday, 19th of January. Media Confidential is a brand new weekly podcast that takes you behind the headlines. When the media goes dark, democracy is at risk. Monitoring those people that monitor us is vital. Expect revealing, high-profile interviews, in-depth analyses. That's me, Alan Rusbridger. And me, Lionel Barber. Strive to discover the truth behind the clickbait. So follow, like and subscribe to Media Confidential brought to you by Prospect Magazine. For Alice Garnett, her bedroom is a fundamental expression of who she is. So how does she feel about her parents turning her childhood bedroom into a guest room? Can we arrange a FaceTime soon? This unprompted text from my mother sent a jolt of fear through my very being. Naturally, my first thought was, oh God, who died? We've already lost our cat Stanley, a chunky orange legend we'd had since I was 12. So I scanned my brain for breadcrumbs of information that could lead me to a deceased or unwell relative. As it turns out, she merely wanted to get my blessing on turning my childhood bedroom into a guest room. The relief coursing through me was enough to make me agree immediately. She proceeded to gut my room of all the novelty fairy lights and trinkets that never made it to university with me. As soon as my childhood belongings were stashed safely away in a storage unit, I was swept into a depressive episode which forced me out of London. Like a sickly Victorian woman, I retreated to the countryside, where I could safely languish until the storm passed. My hometown sleepily awaited my arrival, ensconced as it is within the rolling hills of the Peak District. I found my bedroom, or the bedroom, for it no longer belongs to me, transformed, grown-upified. A few childhood relics still haunt the space. My bedraggled and beloved teddies sit forlornly on the shelf and blue tack marks linger stubbornly on the white walls. The bed now sits in the middle of the room and there's something inherently grown up about a centralised bed. It takes up vastly more space this way and implies that this room is for sleeping. It is not for hanging out, agonising over boys or hormonally spiralling. There's no space for such juvenile activities. Meanwhile, my bed in London sits in the far corner, with a nightstand on just the one side, because there's only one of me. If guests do stay over, they have to settle for a lack of nightstand and awkwardly clamber over me if they wish to use the bathroom during the night. The same, I've noticed, is true of most bedrooms of London residents in their early 20s. The rental market and economy being what it is, shit, Space is a rare commodity and house sharing is the norm. Even out and about, your personal space is constantly invaded by jostling bodies. There is little in the way of respite. I'm lucky that I share my home with three of my closest friends. Everyone does their bit when it comes to cleaning and keeping our communal spaces tidy and we keep a peaceable house. We share medicines as well as germs and give one another fair warning before we take an extended shower in our singular communal bathroom. But regardless of how fond you are of your housemates, 
you likely still require your own space to retreat into whenever the outside world gets a little much. For me, my bedroom is my sanctuary. It is filled with books, bizarre charity shop finds and other kitsch objects that reflect who I am as a person. I even have a hot pink cast of my own tits hanging above the mantelpiece. And each time I took myself into my far corner bed at night, I gaze adoringly at the shrine I've created around said anatomical sculpture. My room is me. I am my room. And my room is such a personal space that I feel taking a partner into it for the first time is a pretty big step. One guy I was dating last year was aghast when, after three dates, I took him home to meet my housemates and my bedroom. He compared the space to a museum, a carefully curated and arranged array of objects that are set up to educate the viewer on a given subject. In this case, the subject is me. Sheila's calling for revolution, and she doesn't care if she's cancelled. As she says, death will do that soon anyway. Yesterday, waiting for the fishmonger to fillet my mackerel, I got into conversation with a half a dozen other customers in the shop. We shared memories of lockdown with disbelief that more than three years had passed since we shut ourselves away, washed our hands red raw, wiped down deliveries with disinfectant, took nervous daily walks, not daring to sit on a bench next to anyone, and watching through windows as confused old people died uncomforted. Someone asked, do you think we would be so obedient now? There was an immediate chorus of no way, not bloody likely. What, obey this fucking lot? We have been watching open-mouthed the behaviour of this fucking lot during the Covid inquiry. Most of us obeyed the rules even though there were clues in the daily briefings that all was not well. We solemnly listened to the medical experts on Rostra, either side of the dishevelled clown who was in charge of the country. We observed his impatience with diagrams and warnings, which he dismissed with roguish positivity in his fatal desire to be loved. Then there was Matt Hancock, our health minister, swearing he knew all the answers when he didn't even know there was a camera recording him groping his girlfriend's bum. I and my fish shop friends mulled over the series of failures since that time by a lineup of risible leaders and a cabinet chosen to get Brexit done and little else. And our constitution didn't manage to prevent a fanatical Svengali with a bald head, unironed shirt and bad eyesight from using his dim-witted, eaten and Oxford-educated Trilby from trying to totally change the structure of our government. Mind you, I'm with Cummings there. Change is imperative. We need people of wisdom and vision, leaders who treat us like grown-ups, facing the future with trepidation, but also excitement. A government capable of implementing the huge changes needed to cope with AI, global warming, mass migration, worldwide unrest, 
and the rise of populism. On the occasions I have visited Parliament, it feels like a rundown gentleman's club. Lots of jokes, lots of showing how they all get on, lots of booze. These days in the Commons Chamber, there are often very few members sprawled on the benches and some are even having a nice little snooze. Occasionally they will deign to attend and have a braying session at Prime Minister's questions, but the place seems to have lost its purpose. OK, let's close it down, get rid of the existing House of Commons and have members meet in a less confrontational circular chamber. No more aggressive swords length separation, no more playground shouting and barracking, no mobiles, no reading out prepared speeches or watching porn. It will be a space solely for listening to others, thrashing out the pros and cons of a problem and no party whips, telling MPs what to say and banning disagreement. They won't be necessary anyway because And this is my most important reform. There will be no more political parties driving MPs to make decisions for outdated ideological reasons. In my plan, each constituency will elect their MP by voting for people who are truly local. Candidates will seriously want to serve their country for a few years in what must be a well-paid job. Maybe a doctor or dustman or teacher who know the problems of their area and come to the appointment with an open mind, a knowledge of world affairs and a desire for radical change. In my mad idealistic scheme, they will campaign to be chosen from about four candidates with obligatory public meetings where the voters can listen to and challenge them, thereby helping them to make their choice of representative. Oh, and it will be compulsory for the electorate to attend at least one of these meetings to entitle them to their vote. And I don't care if I'm cancelled. Death will do that soon anyway. The House of Lords will be abolished and replaced by experts in all fields, elected by the people that know them. For example, film, TV and theatre unions will choose a media representative. People working in the NHS will choose the representative of the medical profession. The same selection process will obtain for scientists, carers, housewives, transport workers, etc., etc. So that we have a second chamber vetting new laws with a spokesperson in the ranks who has personal experience of what is being discussed. The overriding rule for my new parliament will be the novelty of absolute honesty. One lie detected and they are fired. We are sick of lies. If MPs are not sure about something, they will say so. And they will keep talking until they find a solution. Locked in if necessary. And for God's sake, let some women's voices be heard. The COVID inquiry has revealed the incompetence of unleavened male power. So there it is. 
What was that word so much used during COVID? Oh yes, roadmap. This is my roadmap for a revolution. There are a few loose ends to tidy up, but be honest, could it be worse than what we have now? And finally, former England cricket captain Mike Brealey explores the narrative power of a game of cricket. As a captain and player, I believe that sport is storytelling and that even a disinterested observer can find the tensions of narrative on the field. I'm reminded of the Adelaide Test of 1979, when we, England, had batted first and been dismissed for a modest score. By the second morning, we were on top, but Australia's opening left-hander, Graham Wood, was looking good. Off-spinner John Embury and I discussed the importance of keeping Wood quiet, not letting him get going again with freedom. We could see he was champing at the bit. We knew he liked the sweep shot. We put our best fielder, Derek Randall, a deepish square leg, in an unusual position slightly in front of square and 15 or so yards in from the boundary. A single loose ball down the leg side would have scuffered the plan, as we had minimal cover for a sweep played well behind square leg. In the event, Embry's persistence and accuracy worked. Trying to cut loose, Wood swept from off stump or just outside, top-edged the stroke and was caught by Randall for 35. The plan was good, the execution perfect. The cat caught the mouse. The tussle was not only tactically and pragmatically satisfying, but also elegant. For the spectator capable of disinterested attention, this engagement between batter and bowler and captain, with its uncertain but urgent denouement, gives pleasure that goes beyond its practical contribution to tilting the game towards an ultimate result. It's of interest and value in itself, whatever follows. German friends of mine, who've continued to be ignorant of and puzzled by cricket during their 30 years living in England, were visited by compatriots who asked to see an example of this peculiar pastime. The four found a green where a village game was taking place. They were all charmed by the rhythm of the activity, the slow repetitions with slight variations, the pulse of moments of activity with little and larger rests and pauses. The white-clad figures, once described by British art critic Adrian Stokes as liable to be hard to distinguish from the air from a scattering of cows, represented for Stokes the browsing and feeding nature of this slow dance of white on green. He emphasises the nourishing nature of cricket, the feeling that alongside the aggression of the struggles, there are also echoes of the peaceful nature of the infant mother feeding situation. Australian painter Brett Whiteley, who had little or no liking for cricket, came to one of the first ever day-night internationals between Australia and England at Sydney in 1979. He was intrigued by the beauty and drama of the ball-by-ball encroachment of fielders towards the batter, 
each movement climaxing in the bowler's delivery. Brilliantly lit, in the darkness of the surrounding crowd, stands and sky, this pulse, regular as breathing, delighted him. Cricket excites and bores. It rouses and calms. Organised, rule-based, umpire-surveyed games, as well as more informal ones in the park or maidan, offer participants and spectators satisfaction that goes beyond the momentary aesthetic pleasures and far beyond the tribal jubilations and disappointments involved in winning and losing. Aesthetic pleasure also merges with moral and psychological admiration. While we value people for their moral excellence, the integrity of their behaviour and actions, we also admire them for something that comes closer to grace or elegance of personality. In his autobiography, novelist Graham Greene wrote the following about Herbert Reed, another art critic, quote, He was the most gentle man I have ever known, but it was a gentleness which had been tested in the worst experiences, on the Western Front, of his generation. It was the same man who could come into a room full of people and you wouldn't notice his coming. You noticed only that the whole atmosphere of a discussion had quietly altered. Complete honesty, born of complete experience, had entered the room and unobtrusively taken a chair. Close quote. Such ease of personality is not merely a matter of good manners. It's an inherent, unwilled capacity to influence others towards a more open, more honest orientation. And it has aesthetic overtones. There are beautiful personalities, as well as beautiful bowlers and batters. I suspect that the great Gary Sobers, whose every movement was relaxed and flowing, he even walked beautifully, conveyed something of his personality in his cricket that went beyond the technical. Watching Sobers, we as spectators saw a person whose arrival on the scene, like that of Herbert Reed, evoked calm, perhaps even wisdom. We witnessed Sobers's natural poise and generosity. Players need challenging opponents. Viv Richards owed something to Shane Warne, and Shane Warne had a debt to Viv Richards. Each stretched the other within the aegis of the game. Each enhanced the other's play. Each was immersed in the immediacy of the contest. The pleasure for them, for their teams, and for the spectators was closely related to the fascination of the battle between these two star players. At every level, there can be similar duels. The attitudes of such antagonists, such protagonists, approaches the sublime. And the sublime is a central feature of play itself. Dutch historian Johan Hoitzinger believed that the essence of play is epitomised by that of young animals. For them, play is physical, enjoyable for its own sake, with no ulterior motives. There are even rules restricting aggression. Lion cubs nip each other but don't do actual harm. All this applies equally to young human animals. Such qualities remain in differing degrees 
in human adults, both in game playing and in life. This kind of involvement is playing for its own sake, not from any extraneous motive. Hoitzinger thought such an attitude is easily contaminated, for example, by an intense desire to win or by being infected by the lure of monetary gain. But such simplicity of involvement, such sublime enjoyment in the thing itself, exists in sport and in other forms of life. And I can't think of a better word for it than aesthetic. Thank you for listening to this episode of Prospect Lives. Join us next month as we discover what trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs our writers have experienced. Prospect Lives is brought to you by Prospect Magazine and produced by Sarah Collins and Martin Points roberts for Fresh Air. Goodbye, stay safe, and see you next time.